0: Um, and some will do child dedications. And so we are of that category. We do child dedications just for a couple of reasons. The first one is that we just don't see an explicit um, example of children being baptized in the Bible. So we don't believe that it's banned, that it cannot be done, but we just don't see that explicit example of it ever taking place. And we here, we practice um, baptism by faith, that once a person has believed in their heart and expressed with their mouth, and that is when people take the step of baptism. And so that is where we get our practice here today. Um, but what we do see in the Bible is this beautiful picture of parents um, coming before the Lord, um, coming before the Lord to dedicate their children. Um, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, Hannah, after struggling with infertility, when she gave birth to Samuel, she took Samuel to the temple to dedicate him to the Lord. Um, and then in Luke chapter 2, we read that Mary and Joseph, they brought baby Jesus to the temple in order to offer him to the Lord. Um, and so that's essentially what we are doing today. Um, this is our modern way of bringing these children to the Lord, thanking Him for the gift that they are, and asking for His help, for His guidance. Um, And so I'm going to invite the parents up at this time um, to join me up front here as we are going um, to dedicate these children. And so these parents here, they're making the commitment um, before all of you and before their family um, to commit to doing all that they can, all that they are responsible for. Um, to raise these little ones as christians and to do everything that they can um, to lead these little ones in the ways of god (laughs) and so i'm going to invite them here and then i'll have a few introductions here Well, welcome these matching outfits this is great and i'll go ahead and just let you continue holding her so that you know we can just (laughs) obviously she's not in the best mood so i don't want to ruin that Well, joining me here on the platform here is we have Caleb and Andy Crossman and their little one, Noelle Claire Crossman. And the Crossman family here are joined today by their grandparents, Jim and Sue Crossman, and by great-grandparents, Bonnie and Ed Crossman. So very cool that we're able to celebrate that. And then over here, um, we have Jacob and Sarah DeGroat and their little one in her bright white dress lily pearl to groat <laughs> and they are joined today um, by godparents casey and abigail by uncles and great uncles trevor and randy and by great aunt pearl i'm guessing that's where the name pearl might have come from huh lily she's laughing and by maddie and by grandparents Lori and ronnie and donnie and steph And so we're really happy um, that you guys are joining us today um, to celebrate these little ones. (laughs) Um, And thank you for allowing us to be part of your family and for standing up here and making this commitment um, before the church family. This is great. (laughs) And so, church, I just want all of you to be aware as well, not just for the families here, but for you to be aware that this is a great time for us as a family. Um, Also, um, as I lead these two families into making these commitments um, to view these children as a gift, and to asking for the lord's guidance and help in that i'm also going to be doing the same for you as well as we continue to view these two as a gift and as we continue to seek to model the christ life in such a way that these two would see the beauty of who jesus is and so this is a great moment for us as a family as well all right well awesome you guys <laughs> this is so now that they're up here, they're like able to see all the stuff that nobody else gets to see. And it's really good. We have a lot of good distractions up here that we hide from you guys, but everyone else um, gets to see. Um, but again, what these families are saying truly is they are just acknowledging before the congregation, before God, that these children first and foremost um, belong to the Lord, that they are a precious gift, that they're committing in their lives um, to view these children as a gift, and that it's their great responsibility um, to model Christ's life in such a way as to lead these two. Um, to one day make a confession of faith. And so what I'm going to do today um, for you guys, um, first, I'm just going to invite um, the families of these two to stand. And so if you are here as family, and you know who I also left out as, I guess I could include, you know, you have some cousins here, Daniel and Emma Crossman, they're here as well. We don't want to take you guys for granted, but I'm just going to invite the families to stand. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read from Deuteronomy chapter 6, and I'm going to read this passage Um, And these words, um, DeGroats, Crossmans, and families, um, these words are for you. Um, Would you hear this as just the responsibility and the call to model Christ from an early age? And so in Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strengths. These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home. And when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And so what the writer of Deuteronomy is getting at here is that it truly is a great responsibility from a young age um, to be leading these two in the ways of Christ, um, to be creating an environment in which Christ is seen and known so that we can guide these two on the path that leads to life. And so, I'm going to ask you, and I'm going to ask the families, do you receive this child with gratitude as God's gift to you and your family? And do you desire to live the Christ life in such a way that Jesus is modeled to your children? (laughs) (laughs) You thought you'd be done saying those words. Well, great. Well, church family, um, again... This is for all of us here, not just for the families um, that are directly related to them. And so now I'm going to invite everyone to stand, and the same question is now going to be posed to you, and you can answer with, I do, just as Caleb did, or we will, (laughs) whatever your preference is. But do you, Common Ground Church, do you receive these little ones as a gift from God, noise and all? And do you commit to living the Christ life in such a way as to model to these little ones and to the other little ones that are running around our midst um, to model the Christ life in such a way as would lead them to seeing the truth and the beauty of who Jesus is? Great. <laughs> we had about 50-50 split on that. That's good. Well, great. Well, now I'm going to invite you. Would you continue standing? And would you bow your heads? Um, if you feel so inclined, would you extend a hand as we pray blessings over these little ones? So let's pray. Um, Father God, um, we just thank you for these families. We just thank you um, for their commitments of following you and just for the great gift of parenthood that you've given them is. And so we just pray over these two right now. Um, we just ask that your hand of blessing and a favor would be on them. And Father God, um, we just pray over little Noel Claire Crossman right now. Um, Jesus, um, you are the way, the truth, and the life. And I just pray that she would know you as the truth um, and that she would never depart from your way. God, we just pray that over this little one. And God, I pray that your spirit would make her Uh, would you make her a woman of conviction that she would be a person who stands on the firm foundation that is your word, that she would be fearless and immovable, that her life would be firm and safe because it is built on you. And Jesus, um, when the waves crash around her, I just pray that you would make it clear, um, that you would just make her a picture to all those around of, of what the safety and the peace of Christ looks like that she would be able to offer that safety of salvation to those around her, that she would be able to show that and display that. And God, I ask that you would empower Noel to be able to share your truth and to share your gospel with clarity, with clarity and with an uncanny ability to speak in a way that's memorable. God, that when she speaks, very different than I'm doing now, that people would listen. God, um, when she opens her mouth, that people would listen that they would hear, and would you just anoint her with a passion for sharing your gospel. And God, as she does that, I just pray that you would make her gentle and pleasant, Um, that people would be shocked at how she is able to share the gospel um, with a refreshing sense of pleasantness, that she's able to share the hard truths with love. God, I just pray that people would be astounded by that, that she would be an example to others of what truth and love looks like. And so, Father... I dedicate her in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Good job, Noelle. You're doing great. (laughs) And little lily-pearled groat. You can switch arms at this time. (laughs) Lord, I just thank you for this young girl. I just thank you that your hand of favor is on her by placing her in a family that knows and loves you. Um, Now, Father God, I ask that you would continue to bless this family um, with a love for you god i just pray for lily's future um that you would change her life um by your grace and god would you just make her a woman marked with grace that she would express to all those around her the grace that you have given her that she'd be able to embrace people um, who are different god that just as your son um walked among us and reached out towards those that others might deem unclean. God, that you would just empower her with that spirit of Christ um, that would go towards those that others would see as a lost cause, that others would see as unclean. And she would just be a picture of your grace reaching out to those who don't deserve it. And so, God, I just pray that that hand would be on her. And I ask that you would continue to just anoint this family and to speak blessings over her and that that would begin just a life out of Lily's mouth of just speaking blessing and encouragement to others as well. That others would thirst for your gospel because they just see the rich providence of you in her life. And so, God, we just dedicate Lily Pearl to grow here in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And now, Father, we ask that you would empower us. Would you empower us to be a people who love one another as you've loved us? who from the way that we model Christ's life, these little ones and all those around us would see the goodness and the truth of who you are. And would you help us um, to be there for these families as the challenges of of parenthood come about? Um, Would you help us to be there to celebrate the joys as well? And I just pray um, just for a fresh perspective of the joy and the privilege that it is to have these little ones in our midst. God, would we never... Would we never forget that? And so, Jesus, it's in your holy name that I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much. And would you give these families a hand for being brave and willing to work there?
1: <laughs>
0: well done. Well done. Thank you. All right. You guys can return to your seats now. Well done. Lily was thinking about it, and then she was like, you no. Know, she could handle it. Well, thank you so much, you guys. Such a good beautiful time to be able to sell a braid that i'll give you another minute just to return to your seats there as well and i'm going to take the center here so um, now we're going to shift gears just a little bit as we are continuing on in our series in the book of genesis um, where we are considering what it looks like and how um, it is for us that we could grow in faith um, how do we grow in faith And we recognize that all of us, whether we have followed Jesus um, for a long time or maybe just for a little while or maybe even not yet, um, we recognize that all of us have this need to grow in faith, continue to grow. And the world has recognized that as well. And so there are a litany of voices that come on us, a litany of voices that are reaching out um, to direct our growth and to offer some helpful tips on how to grow. But we also recognize that maybe not all of those voices are leading us in the way that we would want, and so we're going to turn to the scriptures and see how the Bible describes this process of growing in faith by looking at one of uh, the most famous characters in all of the Bible, Abraham, and how through the ups and the downs of his life, God was working the entire way to grow his faith. And so today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 14, and we're going to look at how God grows our faith by leading us to take these faith-filled risks. By leading us to take faith-filled risks. Um, Because really, faith at its core is trusting in God. It's trusting God. And so the question that God asks Abraham over and over again is, are you going to trust me? Are you going to trust me? Do you trust me when my plans don't seem to line up with your plans? Do you trust me when my timing doesn't seem to line up with your timing? Do you trust me to step out and to be a blessing to others? even if it would be a danger to yourself. And so that's what we're going to see. And we're going to see that because what we recognize is that faith is often not actually grown the best when we are just comfortable at home um, moving along with life. Um, That really, if you would like your faith to struggle, uh, go ahead and just have all of your needs taken care of. um, And don't ever go out and serve the Lord, um, but just watch movies and be as comfortable as you could possibly be. And I guarantee you that your faith would probably stunt in growth. However, if you, like Abraham, um, would accept God's call to step out in faith, to follow him in a direction, even if you don't know the destination, then I promise you that God will be there to grow your faith. And especially when it comes to these risks that God will often call us to take, or these risks that we're often faced with. Um, And the reality is, as we're going to see, especially from Abraham's life, and as we see from the entire story of the Bible, that if you are not risking anything in following Jesus And it's possible that you might not actually be following at all. And I know that's a very... Some of you don't even like to hear that. But following Jesus does so often result in risks to ourselves that I think we have to ask the question, if we have not been risking anything, and if it has been too easy and too comfortable, how is it that we are following him at all? It's following Jesus demands risk. It demands following God outside of our comfort zone. And it's in those moments which jesus reveals himself to us which he provides for us which he shows up and he calls something out of us to grow us in faith and one of the things i just want to point out is that the entire story of the bible shows this from cover to cover the testimony of the scripture is that god is asking his people this question will you trust me every single scenario will you trust me will you trust me we could begin with adam and eve of course Race job isn't here, so this is when I actually um, will go to those passages so that he doesn't take credit for reminding me that everything goes back to Genesis. Um, But Adam and Eve, in the garden, they're given authority, they're given God's presence, and they have access to everything in the garden except one tree. And then the question is, will you trust me? Do you trust that I've given you enough? Do you trust that I'm not holding anything back from you? Then Joseph. Joseph is a guy who prophetically can interpret dreams, and he's a brilliant dream interpreter. Um, but he doesn't seem to have a whole lot of common sense. And so he shares an interpretation with his family members, makes them very angry about that. Um, And they betray him, sell him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. And the question that God is asking then is, will you trust me even if you feel at this moment forgotten, alone in Egypt? Moses, he's at a burning bush, and he is asked by God to deliver God's people. And yet he's thinking, God, you have the wrong person. You have the wrong person for that. And then he's used powerfully by god and the question is will you trust me will you trust me that i will use you your inabilities and your strengths that it will be me leading and so then the people are out in the wilderness and they're starving and they're thirsty and the question is will you trust me to provide you trust me to provide for your needs and then there are some fun stories where there are poisonous snakes going all about the camp biting people people are dying left and right And the people are told to create this bronze serpent, to put it on a pole, and to trust in God as their healer, that if they keep their eyes on the bronze serpent, and if they're bit by these snakes, that they will not die. And God is saying, do you trust me to be your healer? And then finally, they get to the border of the promised land. They send 10 spies in. um, And when the spies return to talk about the land, the news is only, basically only all bad. It's like 80% bad news. And the question is, will you trust me to protect you and to hold to the promise that I had already given you? Will you trust me in this? Continuing on, the book of Job. Job is a very wealthy man, right? Um, and then he has all of his wealth taken. He loses his property. His children are killed in a tragic accident. His own health is compromised. His marriage isn't doing so well because at one point his wife tells him, why don't you just curse God and die? I would say that's not a good sign. Um... And the question being asked is, will you trust me even if I allow pain and suffering in your life? Gideon is told that he will be the deliverer of Israel, right? He'll be victorious in battle. And, but it's said that the Midianites, who they're fighting against, outnumber the grains of sand on the seashore. And then God keeps whittling down their own army down to about 300. And God seems to be saying, do you trust me, even though the numbers don't seem to add up? Or then Saul and David, so we know the story. Um... David was promised that he would be the next king to replace Saul. Saul doesn't like that very much. Um, You can read that whole story there. And there's at one point when Saul goes into a cave to relieve himself. Um, And David's men say, David, this is your chance. This is your chance to take the throne from Saul. He's vulnerable. You can kill him and take what is rightfully yours. And God is asking David the question, do you trust me enough not to take matters into your own hands? we've seen that a lot with abraham's life as well haven't we and then daniel a prayer warrior he's in exile in babylon and a law is passed that there will be no more praying to god only prayer to the king he is now god he's now the one that you pray to Um, and there will be serious punishment if you're caught praying to god and daniel keeps praying believing that god will protect me and god is asking do you trust me to be your protector do you trust me and then we can continue on. Of course, there's Jesus, who we will remember in communion today, who, when faced with crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane, is essentially asked the question, will you trust me even if I won't protect you, but even if it leads to death? And I could keep going all day long, because the testimony of Scripture and every single story that we find is a story of God asking his people, will you trust me. Will you trust me? Will you trust me when it's confusing, when it's hard, um, when you are being called um, to take a new job that you don't feel equipped for, and when you're called to share the gospel with a coworker? when you're called to become parents, and when you're called out of your comfort zone and into these places where it seems like all you have is faith and trust in God? Will you trust me? Will you trust me? And as we look through Jesus' instructions, we know that this is something that he was preparing us for, that following him will involve taking risks, it will involve sacrifice, that it's not always the easiest path to take. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is talking to the rich young ruler, and the rich young ruler, you're familiar with the story, says, you know, what do I have to do to um, inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know, follow these commandments. And he said, sweet, I've done that. I've done everything. Is there anything left? And Jesus answered him. He says, if you want to be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. So when the disciples heard this, they were, they were astonished, and they asked, well, then who can be saved if this is all that we have to do? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, all things, or with man this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And then Peter answered him, Peter's like, Jesus, we've given up a lot. We have left everything to follow you. What will there be for us? Jesus says that everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or a wife or children or fields for my sake will receive 100 times as much and will inherit eternal life. Many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Jesus was acknowledging, hey, many are risking relationships, finances, comfort. And Jesus is reminding them and reminding us it's worth it. It's worth it. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said to the disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. And then later on in Luke chapter 14, which Nick just preached on a few weeks ago, Jesus described following him like building a tower. And he said, just so you know, this will be costly. Stop here and recognize and consider the budget, the cost, because it's shameful to build half a tower and not to actually understand that following me could result risk and loss. And so following God, growing in faith, as we see throughout the Old Testament, through stories, and the New Testament often involves this risk. It involves sacrifice. And following Jesus demands this risk-taking. And chances are, if some of you have been called by God um, to step out in faith in any way, oftentimes what happens, like what we're going to see when we get into Genesis 14, um, is often what happens is this, this inner doubter will come up in these, these instances when we're tasked with putting our faith in God, where the inner doubter will come in to our head, um, and we'll start to ask the question, um, can I actually afford this? Do I actually have the time for this? Am I actually the right person for this? Will God actually protect me from this? Is this wise for me? And when we come to those crossroads where we are considering if this is what we actually want to do, I think we have to understand that it's in these moments of risk, of potential sacrifice for God, in which God can grow our faith the most. That's exactly what God is going to call Abraham to do here in Genesis 14. And we've been reading through the story. At the beginning of the story, God called Abraham to leave his hometown, to leave his family, to leave everything that made Abram, Abram, and to follow him in a direction. And as he was following him, he came up to some situations in which his trust was tested. Um, the Egyptians noticed that Abram had a very beautiful wife. And the, the question was, will you trust me and not take things into your own hands? Will you trust that I will protect you? Abraham didn't do so well on that one, did he? Um, kind of failed the test. But nonetheless, we recognize that God can still grow our faith even when we fail these tests and, and these risks. And so then what we talked about last week is now Abram, his family, and his nephew Lot are living in this land when a famine comes. A famine comes um, and there's more temptation and then their, their livestock and their employees have grown so much that now they're starting to fight with one another. And so Abram and Lot are recognizing that we don't want a conflict between us, so we need to separate. We need to separate. Um, Lot is given the choice, as Nick taught on last week, that Abram generously gives Lot the choice to pick out the best land. Go pick the best land for yourself. And Abram is tasked with trusting God that he will provide for him, even if he is generous towards Lot, his nephew. And Nick um, did a great job last week of actually teaching us the the correct pronunciation of the name Lot. That it's not Lot, it's Lot. just like the name Job is Job, not Job. And so Lot is Lot. And he's really brilliant in what he's doing here by teaching us correct pronunciation. Because as you're going to see in chapter 14 uh, that I'm on today is that the entire chapter is a list of names that are very hard to pronounce. And so Nick has got us thinking about correct pronunciation just to set me up to hopefully pronounce every single thing correctly here. Um, But basically, we have another predicament where Lot has dragged Abraham into the issue here. Um, And if you look at the beginning of Genesis chapter 14 there, if you find your way there, we'll have the words on the screen here as well, Um, you'll see that what's being described is that in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, and that's about all the names that I'm going to try to pronounce from now on, um, but what you'll see is that essentially there were five kings who were rebelling against four kings. And I can't pronounce every single name correctly, but what I can pronounce is the name Cheddar Lamer, um, which is a great name. I love that one. Um, depending on the version of your Bible that you're reading, some of them say Chederlamer. Lamer is how I'm going to say that. So Nick can correct my pronunciation later. Um, but what you see is that there are five kings who are rebelling and fighting a war against four kings. And it tells us in verse 4 of chapter 14 that these five kings, which is including the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, they had been serving King Chedorlaomer, love it, for 12 years, and they were sick of it. They were sick of it. There was injustice, and there was, um, essentially, he was enslaving their people. And so they're sick of being subjugated. They rebelled, and they're fighting this war. Now, in the previous chapter, in chapter 13 that we talked about last week, we see that Lot, um, when he was given choice to live wherever he wants, um, in verse 12 we're told that he moved nearby to sodom It's said in verse 12 of chapter 13 that abram settled in the land of canaan while lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as sodom and so lot here he's not all the way in sodom and gomorrah um, but he's kind of cozied up with it he's kind of gotten pretty close to the border there um, and he is essentially become very close here with the kings of sodom and gomorrah and when King Chedorlamur and his coalition win the battle and they defeat Sodom and Gomorrah. This leads to what it says in verse 11, where Lot actually gets taken. And so in verse 11 it says So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom. So first he'd kind of moved to the border. Now, apparently here, he had uh, gotten even closer. Um, He was dwelling in Sodom. And all of his possessions, and they went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eshgal and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. And so we're going to pause there for just a moment. Because what we see here is Lot, essentially, was kind of in um, the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, Maybe it's fully his fault for maybe cozying up with Sodom and Gomorrah, as we're told in the previous chapter, that the king of Sodom and Gomorrah was an unrighteous man. Um, He was not a good guy. And so it's kind of his fault that he was in the wrong place at the wrong time, cozying up with an enemy that was likely to be defeated here. Um, But really, it wasn't fully his fault here. Um, It's not like he did anything terribly wrong, but yet nonetheless... He was kidnapped. All of his people, all of his stuff were taken and kidnapped as well as a result of this war. And what we're going to see is that even though Abram doesn't necessarily have to go and save him, it was, it was kind of Lot's fault that he was there. God never directly tells Abram to go save him in this passage. But nonetheless, what we're going to see, I think, is Abram acting out of the call of God on his life to be a blessing for others. And even if it's not Abram's fault. It's not his responsibility to go save Lot. He's still taking this responsibility to be a blessing, even at great risk to himself. And we know that the last chapter was very similar, right? When Abraham and Lot are needing to separate all their possessions. Um, it's like, okay, well, this is a financial risk to let Lot take the best plot of land and for Abram to just trust that God will provide. Um, but, you know, slight economic risk, you can survive through. What we're seeing here is a much bigger risk um essentially now if abram is going to do something about this his nephew and all of his possessions and his family have been kidnapped by an enemy coalition then this is going to put abram at great risk to actually his own life and to many things to even just get himself involved with this conflict and so in verse 14 this decision is placed before abram he's told That his nephew has been kidnapped and in verse 14 When abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive He led forth his trained men born in his house 318 of them and went in pursuit as far as dan and dan is not just the name of a guy who stands in one place at all times This is a place Um, And he divided his forces against them by night and he and his servants Defeated them and pursued them to hoba north of damascus And then he brought back all the possessions, and he also brought back his kinsman lot with his possessions, and the women, and the people. Okay, so Abram has this little force of 318 men, which is not a big army. Um, If you can count the army down to the last man like that, 318, then I would say that's not really a big army. You just have a lot of buddies that seem to like fighting. But nonetheless, he takes this little trained army, and he goes after them. And he had a victory. It flies by that pretty quickly, doesn't really talk about all that happened, but it just makes it clear that Abram's little force defeated the enemy and they chased him all the way to Dan and then all the way to Hoba. And then he split his army in half. Three eighteen divided by two. What is it?
2: Wow, that was slow. One well.
0: Oh, we gotta wake up. <laughs> 159. What's that? 159. Well done. There we go. Whew, guys, oh man, I should have done that earlier. We're gonna have to wake up here. You're like, I didn't come prepared for a division test. Um, but so he splits his army in half. Um, they attack by night. They send the enemy spleen. They grab Lot and all of his possessions. And what the author wants us to see here is that Abram was risking his life. This isn't just financial risk here. Abram went out on a limb with this little group of buddies that he does have. And he went out in order to be a blessing to his nephew Lot and to save him. And Abram was risking his life to be a blessing for Lot in this moment. And in being a blessing, he's not just, like, theoretically being a blessing and, like, you know, giving him nice property to live on or just saying some nice words. I mean, sticking his neck out like this, um, acting in such a way that he actually goes out and rescues him and brings back everything— Not just, you know, trying, uh, we'll do what we can do, um, but whatever you're left with is just what you're going to have to be happy with. Abram was thinking of Lot's future and bringing back Lot's entire life. Bringing back all of his family, all of his possessions, everything. And really what I think the author is showing us here is that this is an amazing testimony, just like in the last chapter, of Abram being willing to take this risk and to trust that in the last chapter, God will provide for me. In this chapter, God will protect me. I can go out, I can take my little army against these enemies, and we can seek to rescue Lot and his family, because God will protect me. That's worth this risk, knowing that we can trust in God. So continue on the story in verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Cheddar Lamer, and the kings who were with him, I don't get tired of saying it, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the God the Most High. And he blessed him, and he said, Blessed be Abram, God of the Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God the Most High, so he's made confession to God, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say that I have made Abram rich. So I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten, not getting that back, and the share of the men who went with me. So let Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre take their share. That's the end of this chapter here. Now, um, it's in this chapter that as we just read through, and and it's funny because you just kind of fly through it in the story, and you're reading this, and you're like, okay, what is this even telling us? Um, but in this chapter, we're introduced to who is one of the most mysterious characters in the entire Bible, Melchizedek. Many of you are probably wondering who is this guy, Melchizedek, and how exactly can he be a priest of the most high God without being connected to Abram's family? There are lots of big theological questions involved in that um and short answer is i would just say many of you are wondering is he jesus is this a preincarnate appearance of jesus short answer i don't think so because as we studied in hebrews last spring um in hebrews chapter 7 the author of hebrews who seems to know a lot about melchizedek um he says that melchizedek resembled jesus um So for me, I feel like if he knew and was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write about Melchizedek and he didn't say that he was Jesus, he said he resembled him. I don't think he was him. (laughs) Um, But long answer is that I won't go into that now. Go onto the church website and go to February 27th when we taught on Hebrews chapter 7 and you can hear an entire 35-minute teaching on Melchizedek. Sounds good. For the rest of you, sorry have been at church that day Um, but we won't go into them because really what i think because i don't think melchizedek is jesus i but he's a priest of god i want us to focus not on him and on that person but focus on actually what melchizedek tells us to focus on um, what melchizedek does because that is i think the center point of this entire chapter and the center point about this entire topic of faith-filled risks of god growing our faith through risks Because what Melchi is pointing our attention to here is he is saying there, blessed be Abram, by God the Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God the Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So this is what he's pointing Abram's attention to. This is what he's pointing our attention to. He's pointing our attention to God. Um, And he's saying, blessed be Abram, by God, not by your great 318 guys who are really well-trained and who are good fighters, no. He's saying, don't forget that it's God who is the possessor, the creator of all things, and actually that this victory and all the spoils of the war are actually truly gods, that you are blessed by God. And he's saying that it was God who delivered your enemies into your hands. So what Melchizedek is saying here is that God gave you the victory, and God gets the credit. And this, I think, is really central for our taking risks to trust in God, is understanding that God is the one who's with us, that any victory comes not by might or strength, but by God, and that when those instances happen, we give God full credit, right? And so he goes, blessed be Abram. Clearly, God cares for you. He loves you. Um, He's fighting on your behalf. He's blessing you. He's holding to that promise that he gave you that he's going to make your family a mighty nation. You don't have any kids yet, so he's protecting you. God did that for you, and he gets all the credit. He gets all the credit. Um, Now, no one has established who first said this, um, but it's been said often that if you find a turtle on a fence post, you know it didn't get there by itself, right? Right? That this is essentially what Melchizedek is saying to Abraham here. That's like a Nick joke, isn't it? Um, But that's essentially what Melchizedek is saying to Abraham here. In other words, Melchizedek is saying like, hey, don't get cocky. Um, You didn't do this on your own. He's reminding him of this great responsibility that he took to save his nephew Lot. That's great. Good job, Abram. But you went and saved him with a really small force. And it looks kind of fishy that you had this victory. (laughs) I don't think it was because of your own ability. I think this happened because of God's power. God clearly did this. So this is a reaffirmation of God's provision and protection on his life. So Melchizedek is saying, great job. You took a risk. You stepped out in faith. But know that this should cause you to grow in faith in God, not your own ability, not your 318 men. See here that God is the one who protects you And may your faith be strengthened here in God's promise, in God's protection on your life. He's telling him that this is a turtle on a fence post moment for you. You did not get here by yourself. Now, I had a bit of a turtle on a fence post moment this last week. I know that you guys, there's a lot of sports to keep up with right now. You know, the World Series is happening right now. The Oregon Ducks are a top 10 team. Um, But there's also which I'm sure you're all aware of, there is um, Tuesday night um, fall co-ed volleyball that is taking place in Rapid City. Um, And you probably know this already, but what if I told you that the team that won the Tuesday night fall co-ed volleyball lower B, in parentheses B, championship, was actually a team of a couple engineers, a pastor, and a a seven-and-a-half-month pregnant woman. (laughs) Because that's who won this last week. Um, Yeah, we had a great time. We have a few pictures. that. Yeah, look at that. Look at this team. Look at these all-stars. We've been playing for like a year, and we should probably move up. Um, but essentially, this, again, to take Mel Kizadek's advice, what we have to recognize is that we did not win the Rapid City Fall Co-Ed Tuesday Night Volleyball uh, Lower B Championship on our own. But we have to give God all the credit, right? And this is really, you know, it was an amazing victory, obviously, that a three-seed would take the ship, but it happened. And so we give God glory and the credit. And really this is actually kind of key for understanding our faith as well because when we think of pride, we typically probably think of pride in terms of like, well, a pastor bringing a uh, (laughs) a trophy on stage and talking about a Tuesday night volleyball. We're like, yeah, yeah, that's what pride looks like. Um, But let me show you kind of the flip side of pride as well. Maybe the flip side of pride is also seeing a great risk that God is calling you to And saying, I don't have what it takes. Maybe that's also the flip side of pride. Because if we were to say, well, I will take that risk because I do have what it takes. Then is that the posture of Melchizedek's instructions where we would know that the victory is all Jesus's. And we would know that he would get all the credit. Or does that seem to be placing a lot of the credit and a lot of the ability on ourselves. That actually it's when God calls us to something. And that inner doubter comes up to say, am I the right person for this? Is it the right time? Can I actually afford this? When actually I would say that that might also be pride itself as well. That might actually be focusing too much on ourselves, not on the God who is going to make this happen, and on the God who would receive all the credit, right? That to take Melchizedek's focus that he's telling us to have, it's to trust that God is the one who would provide the victory, and that in the end, he is the one who would get all the credit anyway. So we have that picture often when it comes to those post victories. But what about even just when that risk is placed before us beforehand? Would we actually trust God to step out in faith? Would we risk it? Now, in Romans chapter eight, this is kind of a theme verse that we've been looking at through our entire study on growing in faith because it's kind of a theme verse for Abram's entire life. Paul's just been talking about the gospel for the last eight chapters, and he's going to transition here. And he says in verse 31 of Romans 8, he says, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, with Jesus, his son, who he gave for us, Will he not graciously give us all things? And so this is really critical, I think, for understanding this entire series, for understanding how we grow in faith, is what Paul is saying here. Centuries after Abram did this, Paul is saying, hey, God is for us. Some of us really need to hear that. His posture is towards us, towards you as a father. And that is true and that is evident in the fact that he gave his son for you. He's saying, what more evidence do you need? To put your faith, your trust in him. To follow him, even at great risk to yourself. Even when it doesn't look like it would be possible. You only have 318 men. You only have a washed up pastor and a pregnant woman. To understand that God is for you. And so Paul says, if this is true, Who can be against us? Like what real enemies do you have? What real risk isn't worth it? Um, What risk, if it did not work out, would truly lead to your life falling apart to the point that trusting God was not worth it? Really, what, what risk would be too great for that? What risk would be too great? What could you possibly lose that is worth more than the reward of faith given to you From, as Melchizedek says, the possessor, the creator of heaven and earth. I think this is what God is speaking to us in this chapter today. He's he's whispered these calls in our hearts and minds. Some of us, it hasn't been a whisper, it's been a billboard. Um, But he's called us to take these risks. And I think the words of the Apostle Paul remind us here, like, what are we afraid of? What would cause us to hesitate to take these risks of faith? Will God not always provide for us? Just like we see from Abraham over and over again, what could we be so afraid of losing? So Paul is reminding us, God is for us, God is providing for us, God is protecting us. If God is the possessor of all things in heaven and on earth, then it's worth it to take that risk. It's worth it to see our lives, like Abram, as fundamentally for the blessing of others the glorifying of God. Even if it isn't necessarily our responsibility, Lot kind of got himself into that situation in the first place. Could we trust God to still work through us in these situations? And many of you know exactly what I mean when I describe this. Many of you are processing some of those calls today. Um, many of you are working through that or you have taken steps of faith, where um, some of you um, have been working um, diligently working at the Hope Center um, preaching at City, or, or working with students at Campus Ventures um, or just making coffee in the morning or going down and working with the kids here at church uh, many of you have seen that where you have said okay I'm taking that risk and somewhere along the way you start to wonder "Like, is it worth it? but I know that many of you who have taken those steps of faith who have followed God when at first it looked like that was not going to be worth it you weren't the right person Um, it wasn't going to work out there was too much at risk i know that many of you have expressed that because you stepped out in faith and followed god that he's just rewarded you over and above you've entered into one of the greatest seasons of growth blessing that you've ever seen and i'm just reminded of a few months ago when nick uh, not nick when uh, chris hurt his knee at man camp and um there's a time when we had swam over to this big cliff um, and we were going to do some cliff jumping into the lake. And there were a bunch of guys who maybe were a little afraid of jumping off the cliff. Tyler was certainly not. He was just jumping left and right. But some of the guys were a little afraid to make this jump until they finally did. And then we stayed out there for a long time, just jumping one after another, over and over, as long as we could take the freezing cold temperature. And the difference between that initial fear that just keeps us sit there and being permanently afraid to just wanting to be out there all day and jump over and over again, I mean, is that first initial step of just jumping, of just following, that first initial step of seeing if it's worth it. And I think when it comes to growing in faith, when it comes to trusting in God, I think over and over the testimony of Scripture and the testimony of those around us is that to take that step out in faith, even at great risk to ourselves, proves over and over to be worth it every single time. Obviously, doesn't always go perfect. We look at Abram's life, and his life is full of ups and downs. Fear for his life, right? His nephew was kidnapped and war ravaged the land. There's still very much pain involved, often. But it's in those moments in which he's able to see a God who provides and protects and who is there with him every step of the way. Worth it. And so as we conclude here, um, for some of you, um, and don't click to that slide, that one's not wrong, so we can just stay here. Um, but for some of you, um, this might be something you've been processing for a while, um, where God has already laid something before you. And as we conclude and as we pray and as we come before the bread and the wine to remember what Christ has done for us, um, would you just be asking Jesus to, how are you with the faith that you need, to take a step? Or for some of you, maybe you don't know what risk God is calling you to take at this moment. Would you just ask Jesus, Jesus, what are you calling me to risk? How are you calling me to step out in faith for you? So let's bow our heads and pray. So Lord, here we are. You've called us out. You've promised to be with us. And now we ask that you would fill our hearts with faith, build boldness. Would you give us the strength to follow through with what you've called us to? And Jesus, for, your, for the sake of your great name, we just ask that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We just ask that you would continue to lead us. You instructed us. We just ask that you would empower us to see that you are the God who has promised to be with us even to the end of the age. And we commit to being a people who step out in faith knowing that you are there with us, that we trust in you, provide and to protect so God some of us you've placed this on our hearts already and we're just turning to you and saying God lead us and some of us we don't know what this looks like just yet And so Jesus I just ask that you'd be speaking in this room today and would you make it clear what it is that you're calling us to what situation around us in our life are you calling us to do something about even at great risk to ourselves to be a blessing to be your hands and feet, to share the truth of your word. God, what is it? We are a people with eyes and ears and hands open to your will. So Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.
1: I just felt like this morning, as Evan was talking about um, the turtle on the fence post moment, um, I just remembered uh, this week um, a moment that I had. That was very, very similar. Uh, definitely a turtle on a fence post moment, but just a culmination of five years. Um, just going to school, going to um, in a, in a chemical engineering degree. Insane. <laughs> I was not prepared for everything that would come, like, come in the future, but this week. Um, I really felt that God had equipped me. Um, in a, I was in a presentation, and um, I just felt so comfortable. Um, and that was like one of the few moments that I felt really like sure of what I'm doing. So I just want to ask you guys um, as well to think of those testimonies that you have. Um, And as we sing, we're singing, Great Are You, Lord. And I just want to invite you guys, as we sing, it's your breath in our lungs to um, just think of that. Um, Think of how every moment that we are spending, um, that um, every word, every breath that comes out of us is from God um, all those moments he is placing us in that. So
2: you give glory.
0: That we are going to take communion together as a church family. And very clearly in that passage, um, we just see a picture of Jesus where maybe it wasn't totally our fault, we were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Whatever the situation is, um, we were in desperate need of rescue. Um, and Abram served as a picture of how Jesus, at great risk to himself, that's an understatement, at ultimate loss of his life, he came. And he rescued us and so as we take communion today as i'm going to invite you to come forward and to grab on the elements in the front and there is one in the back as well and um, we're doing this to remember that to remember the great reality that we we had nothing we had been completely taken over conquered by sin but that jesus because of his death sacrifice and his resurrection has freed us and not just given his life but he's brought back absolutely everything that we could ever need. And so I'm going to invite you to this time um, to grab um, the bread and the wine in these cups and to return to your seat, and then we will take together. And so Jesus, the night when he was betrayed, says that the hour, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And then he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them Saying, this is my body given for you do this in remembrance of me let's do this in remembrance of Christ and in the same way after the supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Let's do this in remembrance of him. So Jesus, um, we just thank you. We thank you that we were helpless. We were in need of rescue. And that you came and provided that. And so now, Jesus, we just turn to you in worship. I'm just declaring your goodness in saving us that though our sins were red as scarlet, that you have made us white as snow. And we just praise you for that. We thank you for your sacrifice on the cross for us. Our entire lives are lived out without reality. So, Jesus, we turn to you in praise. We love you. In your name we pray.
2: Cause Jesus paid it all. See?
0: Grand Church, as you go, one, thank you for being here. Thank you for worshiping with us. Thank you to the families who are here to, to celebrate and to support the DeGroats and the Crossmans and that commitment that they made today. Um, but as you go, would you go with a benediction from Romans chapter 8, right after the verse that we had just read. And I'm reading from the NLT. I like the way this says it. Where he, the Apostle Paul said, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries for tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love no power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed to us in Christ Jesus. And so, Common Ground Church, what is that risk that God is calling you? He will be with you. Nothing can separate you from his love. He's the protector of your life, and he's the possessor of all things. So go with that hope. So thank you for being here this morning. Grace and peace. Have a wonderful week.